Hey, we really did it. 52 chapters and 21 episodes of Bible Nerdery Later, we have made it through the book of Jeremiah. This is The Backdrop. Thanks for joining me on The Backdrop. This is Curtis one last time, at least for this book. We are wrapping things up this week, and it should be a little bit of a shorter backdrop because even though we're going through the final seven chapters, seven whole chapters of Jeremiah this week, we've covered most of what's here already. Either in previous episodes, Jeremiah repeats a lot of the judgment and destruction content he earlier applied to Judah itself, or in the sermon this past Sunday, where we gave a couple specific examples of what exactly Jeremiah is trying to do in these chapters. However, there are a couple quick things to note and some broad themes that I did want to note before we close this book as a whole. As we read through these chapters, it's easy to see just a blur of place names and destructive words, but it might be interesting to just quickly review where exactly these places are. And it might be helpful, actually, if you have a map in front of you of the Near East, um, if you aren't super familiar with that uh, region. Judah, at this point in history, is a pretty small territory on the whole. It extended approximately 20 miles north from Jerusalem itself to where the northern kingdom of Israel would have been before it fell to the Assyrians. It extends about 20 miles east from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea, about 20 miles west from Jerusalem to the border of the Philistines' territory, and then maybe 100 miles to the south to the town of Kadesh, although when you go past Beersheba, about 50 miles south of Jerusalem, the rest is basically wilderness. So for all intents and purposes, we're talking a rough rectangle, 40 miles wide and 70 miles long. That's 2,800 square miles, less than three quarters the size of LA County, or three orange counties if you prefer. So this is not a big area that we're talking about. And several of the nations that are mentioned in these chapters would have been really, really close at hand. And so Egypt is pretty obvious. It's more or less the southwestern edge of the known world as far as Israel is concerned. And what we'll see is that these nations are named in roughly geographical order, southwest to northeast. Not exactly, but close enough to see that whoever actually put these prophecies together, what they were trying to do. So after Egypt, in chapter 47, we move to the Philistines. They kind of seem omnipresent in some parts of the Old Testament, but it's likely that the word Philistines sometimes just stood in for a few different people groups that had lived in the promised land before Israel got there. And so here, this is moving up the coast from Egypt and to the north. The Philistines were a coastal people directly west of Jerusalem. And in chapter 47, Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon are also mentioned, which were even further north along the Mediterranean coast. These were seafaring people. In fact, the Phoenicians at the time had city-states spread out throughout the whole Mediterranean world rather than one nation-state. In chapter 48, we get to Moab, which would have been directly east of Jerusalem, across the Jordan River or the Dead Sea. Here we get the first mention of the foreign gods being taken off into exile. I mentioned this in the sermon, but this is, in one sense, figurative language using the gods as a representative of the people as a whole who are being taken off into exile. But the idols themselves, the carved rocks or golden figurines or whatever they were made of, 
they were often, you know, kind of ceremoniously carted off by the conquering nations as a physical demonstration of what I was talking about this weekend. We have defeated your gods. They are powerless. See, we're literally carting them off into exile. Chapter 49 then takes us to Ammon and then to Edom, staying in the region just to the east of Israel. Ammon was the nation across the Jordan River to the east of the kingdom of Israel, so kind of northeast from the current kingdom of Judah. And then Edom is the kingdom that would be to the southeast of Judah. They lived in a more mountainous region, and you can see lots of references to crags and caves and mountains and eagles and such in the words Jeremiah speaks to Edom. So those are the nations close at hand. And then later in chapter 49, Jeremiah takes us to what are basically the extremes of the known world, or at least the relevant world. The people of Judah likely knew of city-states in Greece or India or sub-Saharan Africa, but they were too far off to be very relevant to their lives. So chapter 49 takes us to the northern extreme of Damascus in Syria, the southeastern extreme of Qadar, who were nomadic tribes in the Arabian deserts and over to the Persian Gulf, And then the northeastern extremes of Elam, which was a kingdom on the far side of the Persian Gulf in modern-day Iran. And it ended up being one of the groups that became part of the Persian Empire that followed the fall of Babylon. These three extreme nations had little to do with Judah, but they make the point Jeremiah wants to make. Yahweh is the God of the whole earth. Yahweh is God of Judah. Yahweh is God of Egypt and Babylon, the two great powers that bookend these chapters. Yahweh is God of Edom, Ammon, Philistia, and Moab, the close geographical rivals of Judah. Yahweh is the God of Damascus, Elam, and Kedar, the the ends of the earth, so to speak. So that gives you the geographical sweep of these chapters. But I also wanted to survey some of the thematic sweep as well. I mentioned the main idea this weekend, and just now, God is the God of the whole earth. Judah, exile, everything in between. But Christopher Wright, whose commentary of Jeremiah I've mentioned a whole lot on these podcasts, and which I highly recommend, summarizes some of the other repeated themes in a way I found helpful. This is from page 426 of his book. And he says this, Themes that run through these chapters, and are amplified even more in chapters 50 and 51, include the following. The folly of human arrogance, bombast, hubris, and inflated ambitions. The futility of trusting in false gods that turn out to be useless in the day of disaster. The illusion of security and complacent faith in one's own resources or natural defenses. God and the Nebuchadnezzars under God's mandate can penetrate them with ease. The rebound effect of violence and aggression. Those who violate even fallen conventions of humane behavior find themselves facing divine and human retribution. The terrible suffering caused by war and the floods of weeping and mourning, human and divine, that give voice to it. The interaction of judgment and hope in God's sovereign weaving of international history. Nations rise and fall and rise again. God remains constant, according to principles announced in chapter 18. And above all, what these chapters show us is that God deals with the nations consistently. And then the final word is to the empire of Babylon. The one that has been seen as doing the work of God throughout this book in bringing judgment and destruction to Judah. We've talked before about the competing pro-Babylon and pro-nationalism political factions that existed in Judah and can be seen in the pages of this book. 
But these chapters make it clear that while Jeremiah sided often with the pro-Babylon faction, Jeremiah is not pro-Babylon. Babylon is under the same God as all the rest of the nations and will face the same consequences for its own arrogance, oppression, and violence. Some scholars don't think these chapters were actually written by Jeremiah because they show such a shift in message from the earlier attitudes towards Babylon. Things like, go out and surrender, serve Babylon, build gardens there, pray for it. But, as I've said before, this is just another case of some biblical scholars completely missing the whole point of the book they're supposed to be studying. This is not a pro-Babylon book. This is a pro-Yahweh book. There's a big difference. And in chapters 50 and 51, Christopher Wright also pulls out six themes there that I thought also were really helpful in understanding the chapters, and I'm going to quote them here as well. These start on page 433 of his book, and he expands on them more than I'm going to now, but these are kind of the highlights of these themes that he sees in the chapters referring to Babylon. Number one, the violence of Babylon will be avenged. Empires are human constructs, he writes, and human beings tend towards aggression and violence. Number two, the arrogance of Babylon will be brought low. Number three, the gods of Babylon will be powerless to save them. Number four, the land of Babylon will be devastated by enemies from the north. And here Wright makes what is a key point. Jeremiah uses language in this chapter that parallels the language used to describe the conquest of Judah, picturing a military defeat of cosmic proportions. More on that in a minute. In reality, Babylon had largely collapsed already before the insurgent Persian Empire waltzed through the gates of Babylon without much resistance about 70 years after this time. We make a mistake when we read these prophecies in the Old Testament too literally. They aren't meant to tell us the exact way in which future military battles will play out. They are meant to use poetic language, apocalyptic language, to illustrate what are deeper truths. Babylon will fall. The things they put their trust in, like their military might, will do nothing to save them. And their fall will be irrevocable. There will be no comeback. The world as it seems now, when Babylon is in power and nothing could possibly challenge that awesome power, will be turned upside down. The details from the prophecies, especially apocalyptic prophecies that describe the undoing of creation itself, they are in the service of that larger meaning. And we get into trouble when we try to read the details literally when they were never meant to be taken that way in the first place. And this, by the way, applies equally to the book of Revelation, which we'll get to in a second. Theme number five the fall of Babylon will signal the restoration and return of Israel. And then the final theme in chapters 50 and 51, the fate of Babylon carries cosmic significance. And what Wright means by that is this. There are, there are chunks of chapters 50 and 51 that speak to Babylon, but actually have in view the broader reality of evil in the world and what God is ultimately going to do about it. It is less concerned with the actual Babylon and more with what Babylon represents, the arrogance and violence of power taken to the extreme. This is the legacy of Babylon. It's why the New Testament picks up on these words to Babylon from Jeremiah and applies them to the Babylon of their day, Rome, in passages like Revelation 18. And there, too, the words have both a close-at-hand meaning, that power and violence and arrogance of Rome is going to be upended, and a cosmic meaning, 
that God is going to put an end to the oppressive patterns of human power and restore creation in the end to what it was supposed to be, aligned to the goodness and justice of God. Babylon seems unshakable. Rome seems unshakable. America seems unshakable. But all empires fall. All empires will have to answer for their injustice, oppression, and idolatry of power, because those things have no place in God's world. And then one last note before we close. Chapter 52 is basically a cut-and-paste job from the end of the book of 2 Kings, with a couple exceptions. The details of how many people went into exile is unique to this chapter. The numbers seem awfully small, 4,600 people. One thing to note is that this is likely the number of adult men who were exiled. There were also women and children that would have gone with them, of course. Another thing to note is that, as we've seen before, and which chapter 52 itself makes clear, these are mostly the elite who were exiled or killed. The poor are left to keep farming the land, making sure that tribute, in the form of easily transported wine, oil, and purple dye, keeps flowing into Babylon. And in fact, there is archaeological evidence from this time period that this is exactly what happened. The people left behind sent goods along the road to Babylon. And then the book closes with one last hint that God is not done with Judah yet. The exiled king, Jehoiakim, is released from prison in Babylon and given a royal pension. This happened after Nebuchadnezzar died and the next king of Babylon took the throne. If you're in exile, this might be seen as a sign that maybe there's hope for the line of David to regain the throne in Jerusalem one day. That never happened. But if you flip to Matthew chapter 1 in the New Testament and read through the genealogy there, you see three groups of 14 names. Abraham to David, David to exile, and then exile to Jesus. 14 names in each of those three groupings. The first name of that final group of 14? King Jeconiah, also known as Jehoiakim. It's one final reminder for us as we read these words to the people of God exiled thousands of years ago. Yahweh can be trusted. The way God brings about deliverance and redemption might not be what we expect, might not even be something we could imagine. But through it all, life is found in Yahweh and God can always be trusted. Thanks for joining me on this journey through Jeremiah. I have had a lot of fun. This is something my Bible nerdery has wanted to do for a long time, and I hope this is just the first of many long trips through whole books of the Bible together. So, until the next one starts, and we'll be sure to let you know when it will, I am signing off from the backdrop. Bye! Bye!